Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Siri Ibrahim here with me today. Siri, I really appreciate your time. And before we get things started, I want to direct everybody to your website because you have a podcast yourself. So if there's anybody that has interest in the whole concept of self-banking, this is a great resource for everybody. So go thinkinglikeabank.com. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but we're going to dive into this whole concept that we might hear as infinite banking. But Siri, thank you for your time here today. Thanks, Jack. Thank you so much for having me on here. I appreciate it. I have to be pretty direct. We're probably going to be talking about a little bit about how to leverage some insurance here today, but this concept is relatively kind of niche. How did you find your way to this? Especially you look to be a fairly young guy. Yeah, it's definitely like a very kind of unusual concept, right? The use of cash value whole life insurance for self-banking purposes. The way I found out about this concept was, so I'm a financial planner and insurance financial services provider. And I was one day just on Amazon searching for books about financial planning, financial services. And I came across a book called The Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Ellen. And the book talks about the strategy. It's the use of cash value whole life insurance. Bank on yourself is just, it's a different trademark, but both infinite banking and bank on yourself both use cash value whole life insurance as the actual asset that we're using. So I found out about this concept in that book. And then that book led me to Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. For those listening, check out those two books. Those books are like the foundations of using cash value whole life insurance for real estate investing, for businesses, for stocks, for pretty much anything you want to use your money to, to become your own source of financing. So that's how I found out about this. And Jack, you are right. This is like a really unique subject. Like even CPAs, even certified financial planners, attorneys, like people heavily involved in estate planning and financial planning and real estate investing have no idea how this concept works. But there are more things that go into it than just a simple whole life insurance policy. It has to be designed a special way. And even more importantly, it's the who. It's who the advisor is and what knowledge they have using this concept and what experiences they personally have using this using this concept. So I think it's essential that listeners understand that. When it comes to insurance in general, mm -hmm. especially whole life insurance, it could be other financial gurus or what have you. It, it, let's be blunt about it and direct about it is the fact that it's gotten a bad name mm -hmm. for itself to a certain extent. How have you found it educating people on how to leverage it, this as a, as a tool like other aspects and getting over that hump? Yeah, you're definitely right. There, it does have a very like ugly sound to it, right? Like whole life insurance, especially like when you, if you follow like Dave Ramsey and Susie Orberman, they talk about like how whole life insurance, like number one, has like very like horrible rates of returns, like very tiny rates of return, how your money is locked up, how the life insurance company keeps the cash value. I get it. You know, I, I see from that perspective that it's not necessarily a sexy vehicle. But it's because they position it that way, the financial gurus and other people, it's because they don't know that much about it. So I'll address each one of those things. So if we start with number one rate of return. So number one, the first thing about using infinite banking is that it is not a matter of rate of return. However, you still get to, you, there's still, there still is a way if it's properly structured to amplify the returns in your policy for it to be 
at least like 20 or 30 times greater than a traditional savings account. So I think when people understand how that part works, they now they're like, all right, one step closer to understanding this. Also, it's not an either or vehicle. It's not either I do whole life insurance or I do real estate. It's a way to do like both and. It's a way you could do like life insurance and then use the cash in the life insurance policy. You leverage it to buy real estate. And then you could then take the proceeds from the real estate, the rental or the dividends or the whatever income you get from real estate to go back into the policy and then be able to recycle that money. So it's a way to amplify your rates of return. There are ways where I've done this myself for as a limited partner in syndications where I actually, I increase the rate of return I'm expecting by using my life policy as a way. And I can get further into this, but there's a way where I'll get into that. And the other part of it too is about the life insurance company keeping your cash value. There's more that goes into that. I think the most important part is the part of being able to borrow your money and then have it grow even when you have that, even when you have that money outstanding. So when people understand those two or three factors, then it's always, I thought I, I didn't know it worked like that. And again, most people don't understand it that way because it's not like this is public information where it's just like on the news and on TV and everywhere people on social media and everywhere people, it's, it's more of a, a low key vehicle that could be very easily misinterpreted. Sure. So could you use yourself as an example then? You said you you use some of this capital in syndication. Can you walk through the process? Like how does how what is the process of setting something like this up and how do you pull money out to do that type of investment? And just explain it as if we're preschool. Walk us through the process so that we just give us a one oh one lesson if you would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's or so step one. It's you have to pretty much apply for a policy, right? A life policy, and there are typically there are life policies that are, that just have life insurance only, and then there are other life policies that have cash value and life policies together, which is like a whole life. So a whole life policy, I'm gonna fill out an application for a whole life insurance policy. It has cash value in it. Now, as much as how as far as how I'm gonna fund it, like how much per month or per year, or even a one time payment, that depends on a couple factors. It depends on how much money I'm making, like cash flow, like the inflow of money. And it also depends on how much assets I have that are either liquid or illiquid assets. This is something we do with all our clients. We go through their situation and see where they're at right now. And then we, what could we change? What could we improve? So like my first policy, very basic. I did $300 a month into a life policy. So that was the premiums going into the policy, $300 a month. And that's typically a good starting point for somebody starting off in the policy. It's not like a hard rule, but that was what I experienced and what a lot of new people who use infinite banking experience, just $300 a month. There's some options where you can increase that much, increase those funds over the years, but start off putting in $300 a month. And then the first month I, I put into the policy, I had cash value in the policy from month one. And this is what a lot of people get wrong about using infinite banking. And they think that you have to wait like 10 years just to see like a dollar in cash value. I saw cash value in, in, in month one. It wasn't much. It was like $120, $130 I was able to leverage. But then I started to leverage that to pay off some credit card debt I had. Because when I started my business, I couldn't get a business loan. I couldn't raise capital from investors. I was still brand new to business. So I had to use credit cards to build up my business. And then once I built up my business, I still had all this credit card debt. So I started using the policy. I would pretty much transfer money into the policy and then take money from the policy and then use that money to pay down debt. And the reason why I did that, Jack, was I did that so I could build cash and pay down debt at the same time. 
I didn't have to choose which one do I do first. Do I pay down my debt first or do I um, build up cash first? I had to, I was able to do both at the same time. So over time, like this is like three, four years ago, I started building up and then I got a second policy and then a third policy. I have three policies now. My wife has a policy. We have a policy on our son. So we have cash value in multiple policies now. And then I came across a real estate deal in New Jersey, the new construction deal. And I use a couple policies to leverage, to, to borrow out from that. And then as my limited partner position in that deal. And I, I'm not expecting any returns from that yet, probably for the next maybe two years. And my policies now are still, they're still growing. The cash value is still growing, even with that loan outstanding. I do have to pay back that loan on my own terms though. So like I can control the payback structure to that loan, but it's going to accumulate interest, but the interest is not much. It's 5% simple interest. Um, compounded in arrears. So this means if you took a $100,000 loan out of your policy, at the end of the year, if you don't pay back that loan, you take 5%, so $5,000, and then you add that to the loan, and then now your new balance is $105,000. So it's a good use of capital. It's a cheap source of capital. And I'm going to let the interest grow until probably two, until I get cashed out from that real estate deal. And this way, it also creates a hedge, right? Let's just say this real estate deal doesn't work out or I don't get as much as I anticipate. I still have the cash in the policy. It's still growing. It's still compounding. And then I might even, who knows, I might even pay back that loan sooner if I have other sources of income or other bonuses or tax refunds or something like that. Some other sort of income or bonus, I can then use that to pay back the loan and then recycle that money. Maybe find another real estate deal. Kind of conceptually, I'm building up a life policy and then using the life policy to build up other investments and then using the investments to build up more life policies and so on. Sure. Okay. So just to clarify then, let's say you you fund your insurance policy to $100,000 and you pull out that $100,000 to do, not pull out, I guess that's Mm -hmm. not the actual thing. You're borrowing against Mm -hmm. that $100,000 and you invest in something. So what you're saying then to simplify is that you're actually borrowing from the insurance company at that point. That $100,000 is actually still sitting in your account. Precisely. Yeah. It's like when you have a house and the house is worth $100,000 and you take out a loan, you're not taking the loan from the house, right? You're taking it from a lender, a bank or someone else leveraging the house as collateral. And the same is true with life insurance. When you borrow, you're borrowing from the insurance company, leveraging your policy as collateral. And that's what explains that non-direct recognition, which is the policy is growing and increasing value whether or not you have an outstanding loan against it. So whether you have a loan or not, it still grows. And that's key when you have other investments, right? When you have real estate, when you have stocks, when you have actively owned businesses you operate, it helps a lot when you can grow cash and still leverage that cash at the same time. Sure. Can you give us like, what are some of the limitations of this? Like how, let's start off with how much can you put into something like this? Is there any limitations? So thankfully, there are no guideline limitations. There's no federal limitation. For example, like an IRA or Roth IRA, there are federal guidelines for how much people could add into those. Same with 401ks. With life insurance, there are no standard guidelines for people. There There also are no limits to how many life policies you have. The only limitations you have is based off of your income and your net worth. So typically, for example, if like somebody's 30 years old, they can get up to 25 times their annual income. So if they make $100,000 a year, they can get $2.5 million in life insurance as the death benefit, as life insurance amount. And then as far as premiums, that's going to be proportional to that. So 
That's the metric that we use. And that's a lot of money, right? 25 times your annual income in life insurance. Or another way to look at it is about four to five times your annual, four to five times your, the premium should be about one fourth to one fifth of your income. So if you make $100,000 a year, you could do $20,000, $25,000 a year towards the policy. The, some insurance companies will let you do more, but they want to see that you're getting that from other places other than your job. If you have money in the stock market, if you have money in checking accounts, money market accounts, and you want to move that money, they're fine with that. We just have to justify it. So it's a, there's kind of two tests. One is the income test and the other is the asset test. That's how you can get as much money as possible. And this is what a lot of wealthy people do is they fund policies with millions of dollars into these because there are no federal guidelines. It's just based off of their net worth and based off of their income. With all of that, what are some of the other limitations associated with? What can you use it for? What can't you? So you could so you could use the policy for anything you want. You could personally own a policy and then use the funds for business purposes or personal purpose, or personal reasons and vice versa. You can have a policy owned by a business. If it's owned by a business, it's a little bit tricky, especially if you like write off the premiums or if you write off the interest, talk to your tax advisor about that. There could be more limitations with that since you're writing off the taxes. Now, anytime you like start writing off taxes or start involving like tax breaks into something, you enter a new world of limitations. Like you're exposing yourself to more limitations. I like to do most of the most people and most of our clients and most policies are usually personally owned. It's just cleaner that way. You're using after tax dollars to fund the premiums. And then from there, you could do anything you want because you're not writing off the premiums, nor are you writing off the interest. So you do anything you want with that policy. You can fund it for business operations, for real estate, for actively owned businesses. You could charity. You could do anything you want with that money. There, another limitation I want to mention is that there's something called a modified endowment contract, which in short is MEC, M-E-C. So if a policy is a MEC policy, then the gains of it become taxable in the future. Typically, like in most situations, a life policy, the growth, the dividends, the interest, the loans, the withdrawals, the life interest all around is typically tax-free, except when it's a modified endowment contract. When it's a modified endowment contract, the loans and withdrawals both become taxable after you've reached gain. So we tend to avoid MEC policies. However, sometimes we intentionally do a MEC policy because there are other financial benefits. The client is okay with the tax burden or the tax problem with that, but the financial benefits like not being exposed to the stock market, being able to use it for real estate, the other financial benefits outweigh the tax liability on this. So I just want to make that distinction is that there's a lot of people talk about, especially a lot of real estate people talk about the massive tax benefits there are with life insurance. As long as it's a non-MEC, it is not a modified endowment contract, then it's pretty much tax-free all around the gains, the withdrawals, the loans all around, it's tax-free. And then you can even borrow from the policy and then use that money that you're borrowing to buy real estate and then get those tax benefits from the, from real estate, cost segregation, bonus depreciation, however, based off of your tax status as a real estate professional or not, and based off of the guidance of your CPA and tax attorney, you also get the tax benefits of real estate as well as with life policy. So it has this compounding effect where you could do more things with your money. One of the... Before we get into it here, I just wanted to remind everybody, if you like what Siri is talking about, head over to that thinkinglikeabank.com to learn some more information and check out the podcast as they go into quite a bit more detail regarding this. So you mentioned the tax benefits here. So I'm clear. So let's say you, you're collecting some money from a real estate investing situation or an investment. You're 
do you take some of those profits and protect them in this as a, so it becomes tax exempt? Is that what you're suggesting or am I misunderstanding that piece? So I get what you're saying. So you're asking if, let's just say you get back like $10,000 from a real estate deal. That's your profit, right? That's your Mm -hmm. exit. You're getting that back. You're asking if you put it into a policy, does it make it tax exempt? The answer in most situations I'd say is no, because when you put that money back into the policy, it's either going to go back in as premiums into the policy or as a loan repayment. In most situations, it's not going to do that specific move is not going to do much to your tax situation. However, when you took out that money, that money to use for real estate, that was probably a tax-free loan. Um, And then when you got that money back and you're putting it into the policy, your policy kept growing even with that outstanding loan. And this is a good question. Like, for example, in a self-directed IRA, if you took out Mm 10,000 from a self-directed IRA, minus UBIT, minus, let's just hold off on unrelated business income tax for a second. But if you took out 10,000 from a self-directed IRA and then you churn that into 12,000, you don't pay taxes. It's inside the self-directed IRA. Sure. That doesn't work with life insurance because when you take out that loan, it's not in the tax shell. It's not a tax sheltered environment where the money going in and out of the policy is all around tax-free. Once it comes into your pocket, it's just cash coming into your pocket. You know? And then I take that cash and then I go put it in real estate or other stocks or bonds or wherever I put it. I'm still on the hook for those liabilities, for those tax liabilities. It just right. helps when you, when you are using the money and putting it back into the policy and over time, the growth of it. So I guess to answer your question, I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't work that way where you could borrow from the policy and then goes back into the policy tax-free, avoiding the taxes you would get, avoiding your tax liability from the other investments outside of the like policy. Sure. No, and I appreciate you clarifying that. With that, one of the things that I'm curious about is the asset protection that might come mm-hmm. with anything like this. Could you go into what what may be some of those benefits? Yeah, good question. So that's a that that was something that intrigued me. That was a reason why I fund a lot of policies, why I also some of our clients, that's a big benefit for them. In a lot of states, like in my state of Illinois, and then I think like Florida's the best state for all types of asset protection. So in in a lot of states, there are certain assets that are exempt and then certain assets that are not exempt. Usually like pensions, annuities, life insurance, those are at the top of the exempt level. Like in Florida, even the house you live in is exempt from lawsuits and creditors and things like that. There are rules to that, of course, check with your attorney. But in general, there are, there's like kind of like a pyramid of um, exempt assets. And usually like pension, life insurance, annuities are at the top of that because people need that money for survival. They need that money for their kids, for their beneficiaries. That's why courts favor them. They don't want creditors to go after those assets. Whereas like your checking account, savings account at your your local bank, that's like the easiest, that's like the most non-exempt asset. That's like open for grabs. That's why a lot of like rich people don't have just a bunch of money sitting in their bank account because of one of those reasons is because of the asset protection part of it. Now, cash value life insurance in a lot of states is at the top of the exempt level. It's one of the most secure forms of an asset that can be leveraged in a lawsuit Again, I don't want to give legal advice and say, if you put money in life policy, nobody could touch that money because I don't, right? I don't know the mm-hmm. state. I don't know the law. But in general, that's, that, that was a factor that I considered is that the cash value is typically exempt. It's not public information and usually can't be leveraged in a, or can't be like seized or taken in a judgment or a lawsuit. You're, you're, earlier, we talked about the fact that you're taking essentially a loan from the insurance company. Is the insurance company then set the interest rate on that loan? 
Yeah, do you exactly. See any bene- do you see any benefit from the interest being paid? Yeah, exactly. So the insurance company, they set the interest rate. They set the interest rate. It's based off of the interest rate environment we are in. Like one of the companies we work with is 5% sim- 5% simple interest. And it's been that way for the last 15 years, actually. They haven't raised the interest rates yet. It's based off of the interest rate environment. Whereas the same company we work with, like in 1990, it was about 9% interest, like other things were, right, at that time. The cool thing is about interest rates and using infinite banking or using life insurance is that it has a a positive impact on the policy owner, the client. Whereas when interest rates go down, so do your policy loans, right? Your policy loans go down, the cost to access that money goes down. However, the dividends go down too with low interest rates. So the benefit for the client is lower access, cheaper access to capital. Now, vice versa, when interest rates go up, the cost of using that money also goes up but the dividends also go up as well. So whether we're in a low interest rate environment or a high interest rate environment, in the the, the context of life insurance, it doesn't really matter. So that's the good thing about it. It matters with other things, right? With mortgages and real estate and other things like that, it does matter. But only with life insurance, it has a positive relationship. In other words, it's not like you have to wait until interest rates go down to leverage infinite banking or vice versa. You have to wait until interest rates go up to leverage it. Either way, it helps you out either way. So what I'm sure we missed a few things. What are some of the other benefits associated with this that we may not have covered here so far? Yeah, we talked about the tax benefits. We talked about asset protection. Thanks for mentioning that, asking about that. Market risk, right? So this is a really big one. And especially right now, you know, towards the end of 2022, the stock market right now is probably not a good place to, to put money. We're in a declining market based off of from the beginning of January 2022 till now. So that's something that a lot of people are concerned about. Like it's like, when the market go down, market goes down, your life policy, the cash in your life policy and annuities both is not affected or impacted by the downturns of the stock market. So that's another benefit too for a lot of like real estate investors and just in general for people, right? If their money is not exposed to those market risk, risk, it helps hedge against other things. So that means if I have money, for example, in my life policy, and then I also have money in stocks and the stocks go down, the life policy doesn't go up, it go down. It actually keeps going up even with that outstanding loan I use to buy stock. So it's a great hedge against other declining assets, the market protection. And then let's see what else. So tax from the top. So taxes, protection, market volatility. And then also is a really big one too is the liquidity, right? So every time you take out a policy loan, you don't have to qualify for that loan. There's no credit checks. There's no credit approval process. There's no underwriting process for that loan. It's just based off of how much cash value you have. Whatever the cash value you have in your policy, you can borrow up to 90% of that cash value at any time. No questions asked. Just you fill out one form. Some companies even now have an online portal you go to and you put your policy number in. You ask how much, what's the max you want? They ask you how much do you want? You can put the maximum and then you can even do direct deposit. It takes three or four business days to get it directly deposited into your account and that's it. So now think about 2008, for example, right? A lot of real estate investors had properties and they had equity tied up to these properties. And then when the market values went down, their equity, technically their equity went down too, because they weren't able to, you're only able to borrow 75 or 80% up to the market value of the property. So the market value drops, the liquidity drops as well. Plus banks are not going to, like in 2008, a lot of banks were giving out money. They weren't loaning out money because it was a poor economic time. So you also have to think about not just your credit worthiness, but also the bank's credit worthiness too, right? Is the bank in a good, good situation to finance and give out loans? So those problems are mitigated, are even eliminated with the use of life insurance, right? 
because the life insurance company, when they're giving you a loan, they're not looking at the stock market. They're not looking at your income. They're not looking at the income of a hundred people near you. They're looking at just the life policy and how much cash value you have in the life policy. So it helps a lot when you are in a declining market and you want to take advantage of like lower costs, like real estate costs, then you can go to your policy. It's been growing this whole time. You can take out a loan. And then even when you take out that loan, it's still going to grow. So that's a really important fact. The environmental underwriting part is a very important factor to consider. You've meant, mentioned that it, it grows a couple of times here now. When you say that, it's obviously we're putting, we're constantly putting more money on it. It's going to be growing. What kind of returns do you typically see? Is it, could you compare it to a savings account or what would somebody expect there? Yeah, this is a, there's a big confusion between this, right? How it grows. So in general, it's a very conservative rate of return. We're talking like two, 3%, very tiny rate of return. And there's even a dip in the first two or three years between the cash, between the premiums you're paying and the cash value you have. So it's like if I, in my city, I put $300 a month in, it wasn't like I was able to leverage $300 a month when I was only able to leverage like 120 or 150 in the first month. But eventually it goes up. Eventually you start off at a, at a negative situation where it's every dollar you're putting into the premium is less than the cash value is going to be less than the premiums. And then, however, this is a long-term solution, right? During the financial analysis with clients, we ask these questions, right? We ask how, when do they need liquidity? How much liquidity do they need in the beginning? And if the clients are very concerned about just the first year, the first or the second year, it's probably not a good fit for them, right? They're not, it's like the point of this concept is not a one-year plan or two-year plan. It's like a 30, 40-year plan. And typically after year three and year four, the amount of premiums you're putting into the policy, the amount of cash value you have in the policy exceeds your premiums. In other words, the policy now is paying you. And I think overall, on a, throughout the whole policy, it definitely grows 20 or 30 times more than a traditional savings account will. Plus the, all that growth is going to be tax-free if it's not a modified endowment contract. Plus you have all that, all that access to that capital. Now, some people are like, all right, so if it's 5%, if I borrow at 5% simple interest, and then you're saying that I'm getting three, about 3% conservatively, 3% over the course of the life policy, how do I make money in that? And the way you make money is the 5% is simple interest. It compounds in arrears. So at the end of the year, if you don't pay that or whatever interest you have outstanding, they add that to the principal. Whereas the amount of money you're earning in the policy, the 3%, it's compound. So every month it adds on top of what you previously had. And there's typically two ways the policy cash value grows. It grows from the interest you're earning from the life insurance company. It's a guaranteed interest out, outlined in the contract. It shows you year one to year 121, 120 or until age 121, how much interest you could expect to earn in the policy outline plus dividends. So dividends are not guaranteed, but the companies we work with have a proven track record of paying out dividends for well over 160 years. So what they do is they take the guarantees and they add dividends to that. So you have two sources of growth, the guaranteed interest plus dividends. And then both of those have a compounding effect on each other. So overall, you have an arbitrage in your policy when you take out loans. When you borrow money from the policy and then you use that borrowed money to go make more money with that, like real estate or other things like that, your policy keeps growing. So you end up having an arbitrage. You made money in the policy and you made money in the investment. And the cost, let's just say the cost of that capital that you use is offset by the growth in the policy. So it ends up almost being like a negative interest rate that it costs. You end up coming out ahead of the policy. So you get the growth from the policy and you get the growth from the investment. And this is early what I meant by saying that it helps inflate or increase your rates of return. 
So if you were expecting a 15 internal rate, 15% internal rate of return by using the policy to fund that investment, it could actually lift up to 17%. And that extra 2% would be tax-free because you got that from your life policy. Okay. I'm sure we probably covered the majority of them, but are there any other gotchas that we need to be aware of? Yeah, we talked about the modified endowment part, the MEC part. We talked about that. We talked about how it's not like for every dollar you put into it, you can leverage every dollar out of it. Initially, you won't be able to do it in the first couple of years. And if and, and it's really not meant to be like, it's not meant to be used as today, how can I make money? How can I make money this year using the policy? It's really, it's meant for like a long-term, like beyond year five at the bare minimum. And we talked about, let's see, so those are the two biggest things we'll, we'll talk about. And of course, you have to qualify for life insurance, right? There's, it's, a, it's usually medical underwriting, full medical, especially when you're going into premiums, like higher premiums, it's going to be fully med- medical underwritten. So you have to qualify for it. If you can't qualify as the insured, you could own a policy on your spouse, on your kids, on your business partners, on your employees. So there's still other, you, still, you could still use this concept. If you're not the insured, you could own, the, you can own a policy on somebody else. That's what I do. And then plus like, you have to be able to justify the amount. So it's not, you want to do a policy. And we actually have this where clients are like, you know what, what if I just did $500,000 a year for the next 20 years, each year for $500,000 then? Sorry, but you can't, the insurance, the insurance company won't approve that risk. You're talking about $18 million in life insurance. They're, they're not going to do that. It's too, they cannot justify that amount of life insurance. So that's one of the things you have to consider is you have to qualify for the life insurance. Sure. Okay. Again, thinking like a bank.com, make sure you head over there. Siri is even giving away an ebook there. So if you head over to that webpage, you can check that out as well as his podcast. But uh, Siri, this has been a great conversation. I have some rapid fire questions for, if you're ready for them. Let's do it. So here's your chance, Siri. And most more times than not, though, I usually ask this question about real estate. So you're welcome to do it in that light. But if you want to do it regarding insurance, you're welcome to do. But uh, what is one myth you'd like to bust when it comes to insurance or real estate investing? Yeah, one myth. Yeah, like a a myth is that you have to compare like the growth of whole life insurance to other things, right? It's a myth to say that instead of doing whole life insurance, you can get a higher rate of return somewhere else. That's not like that's it's not meant for that. You know what I mean? So I think that's just a myth to think that it's a it's a, it's an investment. It's not an investment. It's a way to enhance other investments. It's a savings tool. It's more of a vehicle or a tool, yeah. like you said. Yeah. You're not allowed to say rich dad, poor dad, but is there any other book you'd recommend everybody checking out? And I know you gave a couple earlier on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I recommend I'm reading this book right here. It's really good actually. If you're an entrepreneur and you hire people and you're, or you're thinking about hiring people, I like this book a lot. Who, not how by Dan Sullivan. And it talks about, and I just like the title of it, right? Who, not how, even aside from hiring people, it's important. Like even for example, like in real estate investing, it's not the, where the property is located. It's not how many units it is or the other, it's who is a sponsor, who's a general partner, who is, who's operating that deal. That's the most important thing. And the same in, in other places, right? It's who is, who's involved, not how or not what. Sure. What is the biggest business mistake you've made so far and what did you learn from it? Biggest business mistake? I mean, it's a mistake, but not really. And that's starting off, starting a business without any money and without any other sources of capital or other sources of income. So that was a, a mistake, right? Because it put me into debt and it held me back. But at the same time, if I can go back, I really, I wouldn't really change it because I'm a firm believer that you can't, there are certain things you can't plan out. The execution part is far greater, far more important than just the planning alone. 
you could plan all you want. You can analyze data. You can think about it as much as you want, but you have to execute. And sometimes executing is a bad decision, but I think a bad decision sometimes is better than no decision. Sometimes, of course. So in the situation, that's got, that was kind of my biggest mistake. You might've just brushed on it too. My last question on this series is if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? Yeah. One piece of advice, just keep going, keep executing, keep, keep, do keep doing whatever you think is going to be the best next step. Like I used to hesitate a lot, right? Think, is this going to be a good move? Should I commit to this? Should I take that job or take that internship or take that investment or whatever it is? And my younger self would just tell, just go, just do it. Literally, just do it. I appreciate this, Siri. Uh, is there a question or concept that you wished we would have covered here today? Yeah, I always like talking about failure. So if we talked about, if we talked about, you know, what I think about failure. I think failure is just one step closer to your goal. It's one step that, you know, one step closer to your goal. And I think that it helps you learn from it. It helps you advance and even become better from that, become a better person, become a better entrepreneur from that failure. Great. Yeah. I've, this constant thing that I've been trying to make, and maybe I don't communicate it very well or not as often on this show is yes. that you really need to see those as learn, adjust, and keep moving forward. It, you, you just, it might change your path a little bit, but you'll eventually get there. Siri, I really appreciate this. One more time, thinkinglikeabank.com. Yeah. Make sure you check out the podcast, subscribe to his show as well. And I hope we'll talk again sometime. It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.